Luke chapter 13. Luke chapter 13, we're in verse 10 as we make our way through the gospel of Luke. We've been at it for about uh, 16 months now or so. I don't know if I intended that to be funny. but <laughs> Only what, 9, 11, well, 11 more chapters? Well, Luke 13, verse 10. This is God's word. Given to us for our good. Let's attend to its reading. On a Sabbath, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues, and a woman was there who had been crippled by a spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not straighten up at all. When Jesus saw her, he called her forward and said to her, Woman, you are set free from your infirmity. Then he put his hands on her, and immediately she straightened up and praised God. Indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, the synagogue ruler said to the people, There are six days for work, so come and be healed on those days, not on the Sabbath. The Lord answered him, You hypocrites, doesn't each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or donkey from the stall and lead it out to give it water? Then should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has kept bound for eighteen long years, be set free on the Sabbath day from what bound her? When he had said this, all his opponents were humiliated, but the people were delighted with all the wonderful things he was doing. Then Jesus asked, What is the kingdom of God like? What shall I compare it to? It is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his garden. It grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air perched in its branches. Again he asked, What shall I compare the kingdom of God to? It is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into a large amount of flour until it worked all through the dough. The grass withers and the flour fades. God's word endures forever. Amen. Young people are often impatient with the process of growth, aren't they? I want to be bigger. I want to be taller. And this is something that uh, consumed my thinking a lot when I was younger because, of course, the, the only destination for me was the National Basketball Association for a career, so I needed to get much taller. I wanted to grow up. So something that my parents did was they found a spot on a door frame to mark and to chart my growth. That would be comforting to me. And to be able to see, okay, I have grown a little bit. But at the same time, I would be a little bit impatient. If my body knows how to grow, why can't it always keep growing? And always at quicker rates. So my parents would have to call me down again and say, that's not really how growth works, how the growth of the body works. Sometimes it's imperceptible. In fact, most times it is imperceptible. And you need to understand that this is how God has made the world to work. 
Jesus needs to comfort his people in terms of the kingdom and the growth of the kingdom. And he does both things this morning that are like what a parent might do to an impatient young one who wants to be bigger and taller. The first is he gives us that explicit confirmation that the kingdom is growing as he shows the glorious freedom that he gives, the the, the glorious freedom of grace that he gives to this woman who is trapped in her disability. And the second is that he tempers our expectations in a sense, or rather he lifts our eyes to, to the kind of growth that the kingdom of God is going to experience with these two parables here that we see at the end of our passage. Both of these things are given to us for our comfort, that we see the the glorious freedom that Christ gives, and then we learn and understand and realize how the kingdom is going to grow, how the kingdom of God will be advanced in this world. So we pay attention to all of those things And we also pay attention to these three things that we see within our text, responding, rejoicing, and realizing. Responding, as we see the woman who was healed, respond to the power and the compassion of Jesus. The rejoicing of not only her, but all of the people around who hear Jesus rebuke this leader of the synagogue regarding the Sabbath. And then realizing the nature of the kingdom's growth as Jesus teaches it. Uh, teaches it to us in these two parables. So responding, rejoicing, and realizing all of these given for our comfort as we consider the growth of the kingdom of God. As we turn our attention to this passage, we see that the scene has changed from last week, and we are meant to notice this woman. This comes across a little more directly in the Greek. It's behold this woman who comes, and it's because Uh, Her presence there is noteworthy, and it's noteworthy because of this weakness, this infirmity or disability that she has. And this weakness is described to us, it's emphasized in a couple different ways. Most notable, though, is that it's given a spiritual coloring. There's a spiritual character uh, to what has happened to this woman. Our translation says that she has been crippled by a spirit. Literally, this is a, a spirit of weakness, as it says. Jesus does not handle this situation like he does other exorcisms. And it's also true that other infirmities, other sicknesses in the Gospel of Luke are described in different ways than this as well. So this kind of has uh, aspects of both when Jesus casts out demons and sometimes when he heals sicknesses and diseases. Why is that? Why does this uh, situation have this unique character? Well, the first is, of course, that it's true, right? Luke is telling us something that is true. This, this woman's physical ailment, her, her inability to stand up straight, her being bent over, this in some sense is a result of spiritual uh, oppression. And the second is that this woman paints for us a, a picture of spiritual brokenness uh, with her physical state. There is a connection here between the physical and the spiritual. Think about how this woman appears. She would be uh, severely drooped over. And she's described to us in ways that that definitely unable to stand up straight or lift up her head, straighten herself in a severe way, almost probably doubled over. Standing up straight, your shoulders back, with your head up, what are these signs of? These are signs of strength and confidence and determination. One of the famous 
oxymorons of our modern world is the self-made man, right? But you think of the self-made man in that kind of way. He walks around, he carries himself with confidence, he asserts his presence, he looks you in the eye, he gives you a firm handshake. This woman's completely the opposite, though. And this, no doubt, had immense effects on her life. Would, would, would she be someone who has a good reputation amongst her community, as a leader in her community, well, no, she wouldn't be able to do that. She has the unfortunate combination of people probably not wanting to be around her because of her disability, and then also the inability to work out of this situation. Because she is so weak, because she is so limited, there's just no no chance for her to work herself out of it. For those of you who have dealt with chronic or severe back pain, you know that there's, there's almost nothing so debilitating. You get to the point where it hurts to sit, it hurts to stand, it hurts to lie down, it hurts to walk around. And in all of those things, you feel like you have 0% of your strength. You can't create force, you can't resist force. And so it is with this woman. So she's viewed as someone who's on the margins probably unfit to add to the good of a community. One of the unfortunate people who is just sort of stripped of the good of this life. In biblical terms, she is one who is brought low. You see that that kind of description oftentimes in the Psalms. Someone who is brought low. Well, she is physically manifesting that reality. Psalm 38 would have been a passage of scripture that would have resonated with her uh, quite well. It says this, I am bowed down and brought very low. All day long I go about mourning. My back is filled with searing pain. There is no health in my body. I am feeble and utterly crushed. I groan in anguish of heart. My friends and companions avoid me because of my wounds. My neighbors stay far away. In the situation with Israel, Israel being in covenant with God, people had this tendency, as we've seen in the Gospel of Luke, to look at someone's lot in life as a direct effect of their own personal sin. And we saw this in last week's passage, didn't we? So a lot of people would have looked at this woman and said that her condition is a result of God withholding blessing from her because of something she's done. She deserves this. But there's a clue here in our passage, that Luke wants to confront that kind of thinking. He confronted it directly in last week's passage. Remember with the atrocities and the calamities, did the people who were killed by Pilate's soldiers, did they deserve that? The people on whom the tower in Siloam falls, did they deserve that? Suffering because of atrocities and calamities. How do we give an answer to all of that, right? Well, in this passage, we see the reoccurrence of the number 18. That's how long this woman has been hit with this infirmity. Now, there's no magic in the number 18, right? That's not what I'm saying. But Luke has arranged these stories with the reoccurrence of the number 18. She's had this sickness for 18 years. In last week's passage, we saw that 18 people were killed as the tower in Siloam falls on them. And so Luke is arranging this to remind us of the fact that when someone is suffering in ways like this, we would, we would call this um, a calamity, a calamity of life. When someone is suffering like this, this is not something attributable to some personal sin that she has committed. And that's not the way that we are to look at it. Rather, it reminds us of the fallenness of our world. It reminds us of the culpability that we all share in the misery that is present in 
this world. So what this woman shows to us, whether someone would see it or not, in the physical way that she's manifesting spiritual brokenness, what she's showing us is that sin and death are endemic in all of the world. In all people, what is Satan doing? He's trying to rob us of our dominion and our dignity and degrade us into slavery. That's what the fall and sin and death does. It brings us to a point where we are brought very low. We can't work ourselves out of it. We can't climb and crawl out of our pit of spiritual brokenness. So when Jesus sees this woman, what is it that we are to see? We are meant to see ourselves in this woman. Just as she can't free herself from her condition, the relentless onset of pain and disability, so we are people who likewise cannot free ourselves from the chronic condition of our sin and the corrupt nature that's handed to us at our birth. Our spiritual bondage, our bondage to the fall, is just like what this woman has. And this is why Jesus and his action come before us as a comfort a comfort to our weary souls. We look at what Jesus does and what we see are two things, his compassion and his power. There's a connection here in the passage between Jesus seeing her, he sees the woman, he beholds her, and he's moved to compassion. This is what we see on and on and on in the Gospels with Jesus as he beholds the brokenness and the sinfulness of our, of, of our world, he is moved to compassion. Moved to compassion over what sin has done. And he is, in a sense, more and more emboldened in his mission. He becomes more and more determined of the road that is leading him to the cross so that he might free people from this bondage. If we learn anything from Jesus or are challenged by Jesus here, which we need to be, we understand that we need to be like that. We need to be like Jesus. Moved to compassion over what sin has done in our world. And if we know redemption in Christ, we need to have a burning desire that those who do not know this redemption would know it as well. We've been talking recently about how Jesus transforms our perspective, causes us to see things in light of the eternal. And I pray that that is a comfort to all of our souls. But we need to understand, too, that there are people who have no sense of this comfort, do not know the ways in which Christ can transform our perspective our perspective to the eternal. They don't know the glorious comfort in Christ. And so they need to hear about it. We see Jesus' compassion. We see his power. Calls her to himself. Places his hands on her. As we've seen throughout the Gospel of Luke, Jesus uh, is willing to identify with those who are on the margins, with those who would have been scorned, with those who would have been uh, deemed to be sinners. He places his hands on her and he heals her. His power. His power. Uh, this this uh, dual reality of compassion and power makes Jesus a, a unique figure. He's the only one filled with this kind of compassion for sin and death in the fall and the power to do something about it. And so, uh, in this passage, we are to be reminded of Jesus' compassion and power for the lost. J.C. Ryle says this, We need not doubt that this mighty miracle was intended to supply hope and comfort to sin-diseased souls. With Christ, nothing is impossible. He can soften hearts which seem hard as the nether millstone. He can bend stubborn wills which were for 18 years have been set on self-pleasing, on sin and the world. 
He can enable sinners who have been long poring over earthly things to look upwards to heaven and to see the kingdom of God. Nothing is too hard for the Lord. Nothing is too hard for Jesus. He says this, Let us hold fast this blessed truth and never let it go. Let us never despair about our own salvation, he says. Our sins may be countless. Our lives may have been long spent in worldliness and folly. Our youth may have been wasted in soul-defiling excesses of which we are lamentably ashamed. But are we willing to come to Christ and commit our souls to him? If so, there is hope. He can heal us thoroughly and say, you are loosed from your infirmity. Psalm 146 verse 8 says this, The Lord lifts those who are bowed down. We need to see ourselves in this woman. We need to see the reality of sin and the fall in the world in this woman and the power of Jesus to exercise his compassion and his willingness to forgive sin as he looks and he is filled with compassion for this woman. Not only do we have the glorious example of Jesus that ought to remind us of, of the, the freedom of the gospel, ought to spur us on to live like Jesus in this world, to have a, a burning desire for people to know him, but we also have a counterexample, don't we? We have a counterexample in the synagogue ruler. You can imagine how wonderful of a moment this was for this woman. And as we read it, we say, wow, I mean, you're so happy for her. 18 long years set free. If she was raised on, uh, on reformed hymnody, she'd be singing, My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Right? Wonderful picture of what has happened in her life. But the ruler of this synagogue is not pleased with this. Indignant, it says in our translation. Come back tomorrow. This can't be happening today. The thick irony in that, right? Because if it were that easy, this woman would not have been sick for 18 years. He says, any of the other days, of course, you can be healed, but not today, not on the Sabbath. But once Jesus leaves, then tomorrow will do her no good. No one can heal as he can. Jesus is filled with compassion. Synagogue ruler is calloused. Jesus provides the cure. Uh, the synagogue ruler wants to throw a curtain between this woman and the blessings of God. And so, in this synagogue ruler, we have this counterexample, and we're, we're forced to ask ourselves, are we letting the gospel of Jesus Christ, are we letting our Savior and the attitude of our Savior regulate our attitude towards others? Or are we too often filled with a calloused indifference like this synagogue ruler? What is it that causes him to say this? You know, why does he make these remarks? It's because his tradition has gone beyond the bounds of the word of God. It has prevented him from seeing the true meaning of what the Sabbath is. Notice as Jesus rebukes him that Jesus does not disqualify or abolish the principle of the Sabbath. He simply points us to what it truly means. It's not about meticulous expansions on the law that are formed by the Pharisees. That's not what it's about. The Sabbath was made for man, as Jesus says elsewhere. In other words, it was made for our good. It was made to give us that which we need the most. It was made to give us rest from our toil in every possible way. It gives us rest from the works of our hands, rest for the weariness in our souls, rest from the strife and pain of this world. Take this woman, for instance, doubled over, 
probably very painful for her to walk and to get around, especially in that time. But she has made it a point to go to worship God because it is there that she gets something she can get nowhere else. The rest and the nourishment for her weary soul. But in the mentality of, the, of this synagogue ruler, similar to the mentality that you would see in the Pharisees, what is the Sabbath about? The Sabbath is about propping up your own righteousness before God. Achieving a righteousness through obedience to the law. Showing merit through the law. They do not realize that instinctively, in other ways, they have shown the true meaning of the Sabbath. So Jesus points them to something. Really interesting way that he argues. He goes to the way that they treat their animals. In the, in the Sabbath commands in Exodus and Deuteronomy, you are to rest and your household is to rest, your family, your, your manservants, your maidservants, and your livestock. Everyone is to receive this rest. And uh, animals generally can't you know, provide for themselves, take care of themselves, so their owners need to provide for them. Instinctively, then, you would use the Sabbath day to feed them, to water them, to make sure that they're getting the proper rest. Otherwise, the next day, you're not going to be able to begin work again. For this reason, the Pharisees had made a bunch of laws that allowed people to care for their livestock. Some of these laws were silly. Um, You could pour water into a trough, but you weren't allowed to hold a bucket of water up to your livestock, these kinds of things. But the point is that they had worked into the law the ability to care for them. And Jesus forces us to step back and say, what's more valuable, human beings or animals? Human beings are the image of God, the crown of God's creation, crowned with glory and honor. And it's for this reason that Jesus calls those who live in the way like the synagogue ruler, he calls them hypocrites. Because there's an inconsistency with the way they apply the principle of care in regards to animals and human beings. The greater value of a human being should compel us to care even more for them. Especially on the Sabbath day. Because the Sabbath day has all kinds of reminders for what God has done for us. And his redemption for us. So with this reasoning, it's a pretty good argument from Jesus. It puts everyone who would oppose him to shame. For who could deny it? He says, look, look at what you're doing with animals and livestock. Look at what you're not willing to do uh, with human beings. So they are put to shame. We read that other people are rejoicing. They're rejoicing, giving glory to God, just like this woman did as she responds. The responding of the woman, the rejoicing of the people. Why are they rejoicing? Well, think about what Jesus has done. Think about the way that he has transformed the way that people think about the Sabbath. The Sabbath is slanted more towards observing extra-biblical laws in the mindset of the Pharisees. But he has reminded them of the true meaning of the Sabbath, which is the life-giving promises of God. The fact that God is the source of your salvation. That God redeems you through his mercy and his grace. One of the key phrases we're meant to see here is that this woman is a daughter of Abraham. What does that mean? She's an heir of the promises. She's an heir of God's gracious redemption. And that's what the Sabbath is all about. It's about redemption. And uh, sometimes we read the Ten Commandments from Deuteronomy as opposed to Exodus. And in Deuteronomy, it roots the Sabbath command, remember, not in creation. It doesn't say, remember the Sabbath because God created in six days. It says, remember the Sabbath to keep it holy 
and you should remember that you were a slave in Egypt and God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. It's a memorial of grace. It's a time to remember that God gave you a salvation that only he could give. This is reason to rejoice. Jesus has said, this is the true meaning of the Sabbath, a memorial of grace, to remember the salvation that only God could give to you. This is also what it means when it says they rejoiced in the wonderful things that Jesus was doing. The better translation there would be glorious things, glorious things. And that, again, harkens us back to the Old Testament. The God is the God who does glorious things. He saves us. He plucks us out of the land of Egypt and gives us new life and brings us to a land that's flowing with milk and honey. So, brothers and sisters, wouldn't you rejoice? This is glorious comfort. This is the realization that God has brought you out from under the crushing power of the law. It's like our assurance of grace this morning. Through Jesus, a forgiveness is proclaimed to you that you could not obtain under the law. Psalm 145, the Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The saints of God, Psalm 145, shall speak of the glory of your kingdom. This is what Jesus does. He gives us glorious comfort in and through the gospel. But with all of these connections to the Exodus, we may be thinking that that is the kind of glory that Jesus is going to give. A, a, a glory that exceeds, in earthly categories, the glories of the Exodus. And so Jesus tells these parables at the end. Uh, to show the nature of kingdom growth. So the last idea then, realizing uh, the ways in which the kingdom will grow. Uh, These two parables, again, are given to us for our comfort, but they are to show us that the kind of triumphalism we may be given to, the kingdom of God is is, uh, like a triumphal victory march through the world, it's going to be different than that. Not going to be like a military conquest. Not going to be the kind of triumph that one might expect. But even still, Jesus says, that's okay. That's okay because the kingdom is still growing and advancing. So a few principles from these parables. The first is this. The kingdom gives big things. It yields big things from small beginnings. A mustard seed, a pinch of yeast. Both of these are very small. Right? But they grow into something big, grow into something much larger. A mustard seed grows into really a bush, but we read here that it grows into a tree. That's a bit of exaggeration, right? To show that it, there is a big thing yielded from a small beginning. And if there was anything that started small and grew into something big, it was the gospel. It was Jesus Christ and what he began in this world. One pastor comments, it was a religion which seemed at first so feeble and helpless and powerless that it could not live. Its founder was one poor in this world and ended his life by dying the death of a criminal on the cross. Its first preachers were a few fishermen and sinners who were, most of them, unlearned and ignorant. Its first doctrine eminently called to our attention the enmity of the human heart. I mean, think about all of those things stacked on top of each other. A homeless man, unlearned disciples. Uh, the first doctrine is that your heart, because of the, the evil in your heart, you stand condemned before a holy God. It was something everywhere which, is spoke, which was spoken against. If ever there was a religion which was a little grain of seed at its beginning, that religion was the gospel. 
Jesus says big things come from small beginnings. And the gospel is the means of that growth. Many people say today, if you want the church, the kingdom to advance and to grow, you need to start big. Start real big. Spend money. Use marketing strategies. You see the growth of the kingdom all throughout the world. And it's always the message of redemption in Christ. It's always calling people to turn to him, to trust in him for their salvation. Secondly is this, growth is contrary to worldly categories. If you want to invest in some kind of human, um, human company, um, uh, some kind of institution, you can check exactly how much they have grown or shrunk and then up to the second ticker that shows in the market what it is doing that day. Is it growing or is it shrinking? But the kingdom of God grows in ways that are imperceptible to the human eye. It grows in mysterious ways. It it grows when you close the door behind you and you get on your knees and pray. The kingdom of God grows when you act in selfless love towards one another. It grows when a church will spend of its resources just so that one or two more may know the good news of the grace of Jesus Christ. The kingdom of God grows when you are tempted to sin and you trust in the promises of God and you push against that temptation with all of your might from the storehouse of the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ and you say no and you show your freedom in Christ to stand against uh, evil of the world and the flesh and the devil. The growth is contrary to worldly categories. There's a universal extent of the kingdom. You see that in the way that the yeast works uh, all throughout the dough, even to the end. Similarly, the kingdom will reach the ends of the earth. This is why the church is to be about the great commission, fulfilling it, so that the gospel, so that peace with God through Christ may reach every corner. And then finally, we see the transforming power of the kingdom. Yeast works its way through. It changes the whole lump of dough. Its influence is pervasive. This is what happens in the life of the individual when they turn to the God of the gospel, when they turn to Jesus Christ. Pastor Phil Riken puts it well when he says, becoming a Christian affects everything, for God wants us to submit to him in every part of life. In the Western world, sometimes we struggle with this. We think of our life as a big circle and Christianity as a little circle within that. In other parts of the world, they grasp it better that the faith is like a big circle and our lives are the little little circle within it. Christ wants all of us. It's, of course, not just on an individual level. Transformation is seen collectively as well. We need to be careful with this because there are many people today who talk about transforming the world in a way that is not helpful because it does not hold in tension what Jesus says elsewhere about the kingdom. Jesus says the wheat and the tares are going to grow together and there's going to be the world in opposition to the church even until the end of the age and so we need to hold that intention. But Abraham Kuyper's picture gives us a good idea of this. And he says, the brighter the lights of Christ burn within the church, the more that it illumines the areas around it. And that is what we see happening through the word of God. It's fairly obvious that clusters of faithful Christians will end up having positive effects on their communities because you have large chunks of people living not for themselves, but for God and for neighbor. And all of these positive effects 
are foretastes of what happens at the resurrection. For when Christ comes again, then truly the kingdom of God will be the only reality in the new heavens and the new earth. There's a transforming power of the gospel and the kingdom of God. There was an atheist journalist, uh, Matthew Paris, wrote a very famous article uh, that many people have recognized and commented on. It's about 10 years old. He was raised in Africa as the son of missionaries, and he turned away from God, turned away from Christ, went back to Africa, the country of Malawi, in 2008, and uh, he wrote an incredible article after he came back from it. And he said, I used to, to look at uh, places like Africa and think that all tribal religions are the same. You need to give everyone uh, the, the same opportunity, the same kind of space. It kind of all just meshes into to a big mess anyways. And he says, after I've gone back to Africa, after I've seen all the things that that part of the world is going through. Keep in mind, this is an atheist. He did not turn away from his atheism. He says, after I've seen everything that Africa is going through, I'm I'm now arrived at the conclusion and I can't believe that I'm saying what I'm about to say and I can't believe I'm writing it as I'm writing it. But what Africa needs is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It needs the transforming power of a heart changed and transformed, submitted to the lordship of Jesus Christ because I have seen in my own life that lives are changed. When that message is preached. He's saying I'm not talking about humanitarian efforts. I'm not talking about digging wells. There are many kinds of organizations that are doing that already in Africa. And it ends up in the wrong place. Unless you have the message of Christ. Unless you have evangelism. And hearts changed and transformed. We might add to that. That he looks at the western world and thinks that it's civilized beyond that problem. And all we have done is become more civilized in the ways that we have turned away from God. We've overcome our winglessness with airplanes. We've overcome absence with cell phone calls. But at the end of it all, we still have to square with the evil in our hearts and death. We need to turn to Christ and understand the transforming power of the kingdom. Jesus gives us these things for our comfort. He puts the transforming power of the gospel on display in this woman as he heals her. And then he says... Even when the kingdom looks like it's not growing, it's imperceptible to the human eye, it's imperceptible to worldly categories, you need to understand that it's like this seed, it's like the yeast in the lump of dough. In your prayer closet, behind closed doors, we wield a power unlike any other, and God's kingdom advances in ways like that which go beyond the world's ability to comprehend. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word and for the gospel of grace. We thank you for these things given to us for our comfort. We thank you for uh, the ways in which you bring our eyes upwards to heaven. We thank you that uh, we were those who were brought low, bowed down, doubled over, unable to straighten ourselves. Father, you looked down in your mercy. You plucked us out of the pit set our feet upon a rock. And Father, we thank you that you raise up all those who are bowed down. Trust in those promises today. Father, may your word sink into our hearts. May we seek to live it out for your honor and for your glory. We praise you and we thank you for this and all of these gifts and the chance to gather together today. We pray for all of your people scattered around hearing your word. Call them to yourself through Christ. Amen. We'll close by singing...